The church of Jesus Christ has significant problems. Even those outside the church find it easy to identify weaknesses in the assemblies where Jesus is worshipped. And we, who know what Jesus teaches, who have an inside look at how the church really functions, have even more reason to be critical, don't we? Someone once claimed that the surest evidence that Jesus Christ is reigning in heaven today is the fact that the church has not self-destructed by now. And there's probably more truth than humor to that observation. We understand that local churches have problems. But let us also acknowledge that it is a distinct honor and a rich blessing and a high calling to be united in the family of God. Unbelievers see weaknesses in the church, and they're quite ready to proclaim those weaknesses broadly. But we need to remember that an unbeliever who sees such weaknesses sees them as a blind orphan. We, by contrast, are members of God's family. I'd like us to sit on that thought for just a moment. Let that filter down inside your soul if you have come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You have been delivered from your sin through the work of Christ on the cross and through His resurrection power. Think on this. We are part of the family of God. The Apostle Peter put it so eloquently when he exalted, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are God's people. Amen? Tremendous truth. As the body of Christ, we have sung this morning of redemption. We have a song to sing of redemption. We have a message of salvation to declare. We have a family of believers to love. And we have a God of splendor to exalt. This is a high privilege. And in His infinite wisdom, in His electing grace, God has ordained that His people come together as a distinct community, a spiritual family, and that we celebrate together the glories of God and express together the new life that we share in Jesus Christ. Now this is an agenda that God has been working through the ages and I don't think we can really understand our salvation, really understand our God, certainly not understand our Bibles, if we do not see that this is an agenda God has been working through the ages and developing. In Exodus 18, we look back to a very early stage in this agenda as God works with characteristic brush strokes, inconsistent patterns, to shepherd His people as a redemptive community. It's our tradition in our family that dad does one trip with the school each year with the kids. And uh, it's been my calling to go to Gibbs Farm for four years. I'm really pretty much ready to be done and thankful that four kids is, is finished with Gibbs Farm. But if you've ever been over there in St. Paul, it's one of the earliest farms in Minnesota. I could give the tour by now and show you around if you want to see it. There's really not a whole lot there. But it is a farm, and as you, one of the first things that you see on this farm is the first place where this couple lived. It's really just a place carved out of the earth with a little bit of wood around the sides and a mud uh, grass roof. A little tiny door that you have to duck into to get inside and a bed that, well, probably resembles more a chair than a bed. It's, it's an amazing little place. Uh, probably about a half or a third the size of this platform up here. That was their first house. And there on that farm is a second house, much larger house, which in fact was even expanded to be larger than its original shape, and that's a pretty big house, larger than the house that many of us live in. But when you come to that first house, what you're looking at is a house, and you get the point. There's a wood stove there, and there's a bed there, and there's a chair there, and there's a window, and there's a roof, and there are walls and a door to keep out the cold. It's a place to live. 
As we look at the Old Testament, we need to kind of see it as that mud hut, that little tiny house. As we look into the Word of God, we see the characteristic patterns of God as He creates a home for His people. It's not anything like the glorious home that we inhabit today as the Church of Jesus Christ. But we see Him working to establish His people, and we find that here in this section of Scripture. And I go to long lengths here to say this. Or honestly, Exodus 18 is nothing more than just a simple kind of report about something that happened a long time ago that really doesn't have anything to do with us at all. I think it has a lot to do with us when we recognize that our God is at work and that this is the way that He prepares for His people to be cared for. Where are His people at this place, the people of Israel? They have traveled from the Red Sea and the great deliverance there very close now to Mount Sinai. Chapter 3 and verse 12 of Exodus, God said you will return to this mountain with the delivered people, and Moses has brought them to this place. It's been a harrowing journey, remember? Bitter water that they couldn't drink. No food. Another place where they had no water. And of course there was the whole issue of the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. This has been an amazing account of deliverance on God's part. And then, of late, the attack by the Amalekites. And the Israelites have won this victory in battle. They have come now back to this mountain where God told Moses he would in fact return. And for now, at this moment, as we come to Exodus 18, all is well. The battles are past for a moment. The nation settles near this great mountain where much will take place. But it settles and we see here in the first scene of verses 1 through 12, communion in deliverance. We see the people of God communing in deliverance as we have done this morning in a unique way on this side of the cross. They commune in the deliverance of God. Notice verse 1 of chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Remember, it was some 40 years ago that Moses had fled Egypt and found refuge and employment with this Midianite priest named Jethro, sometimes called Ruel. After serving as Jethro's shepherd for 40 years, God calls Moses to return to Egypt to deliver the Israelites from bondage. Jethro gives Moses his oldest daughter, Zipporah, and he, they have two sons together. Now, recently, as time has passed... Someone reported to Jethro what God had done through Moses to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He also learned that Moses and the Israelites were camping in the neighborhood. They were fairly close, and he goes to see them. Verses 2 through 4 are parenthetical information. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home Along with her two sons, the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. We are not told when Moses sent Zipporah and his sons back, Gershom and Eliezer, back to Jethro. We don't know when that was. It might have been fairly recently here. Uh, that he sends them back to their home, to her home. But what is significant to us here are the names of Moses' sons. We have met Gershom before, we have heard of Eliezer, but now we see again repeated here these sons' names, which indicate the journey of Moses. There's Gershom, I have been a sojourner, and there's Eliezer, the God of my father was my help. That is, these names sound like this and indicate what has taken place in Moses' life. That's something interesting here that they're brought up at this very place. Moses' escape from Egypt took place a long time ago. His sojourn in Midian took place some time ago as well. Why bring these names up here? I think in part the reason may be because these names are also fitting not only for Moses in his past history, but for Israel's history at this very point. Gershom, Israel has been a sojourner a temporary dweller with no inheritance rights in Egypt. And Eliezer, God has delivered Israel from Egypt. We see again the brushstrokes of the great artist as he delivers his people. He has delivered Moses and now he has delivered Israel from Egypt. That parenthetical thought 
Now we move to verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he had encamped at the mountain of God. Mountain of God is what? That's Mount Sinai. It will become the mountain of God as God meets with uh, Moses on this mountain and declares the law. More on that as we progress through the book. But at verse 6 we read, And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So they exchange this customary greeting, and then they go into the tent for deeper discussion, a lengthier time together. And Moses delivers here in verse 8, notice it and concentrate on it, there is a God-centered report that is given here. We could play a little bit with this and imagine what Moses might have said. You know, Dad, you never thought I'd make much of myself, did you? I mean, let's be honest about it. When I was 80 years old and been 40 years as a shepherd, you really didn't think I had much, did you? But look at me now. I was more special than you ever thought. Admit it. That's not what Moses says at all, of course. He realizes that this is all about God. He is still a simple shepherd. Now, with much greater responsibilities, he shepherds the people of God. But he has brought them to this place because God has acted And Moses takes the time to rejoice in the work that God has done. Notice in verse 8 what what he has done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and all the hardship that has come upon them in the way. So he recounts to his father-in-law all that God has done to rescue Israel. At verse 9 we read that Jethro rejoiced in response for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. I think the idea there is that these gods dealt arrogantly with the people of Israel. That is, these gods claim to have this great power and superiority over the Nile, for instance, and over light and these types of things. And God has shown his mighty hand in victory over these gods who have oppressed his people, at least in the minds of the Egyptians. Now, notice Jethro's response. Is that how everybody responded? Remember back to chapter 15, verses 14 through 16? As the other nations heard of Israel's deliverance, how did they respond? Their hearts turned to stone. They trembled with fear. They were, they were concerned for what they were seeing happen by God's power. What did the Amalekites do? They came and attacked Israel at the rear of, of the people in order to destroy them and to bring them out of existence so that they would not come back to Canaan. Not everybody responded the way that Jethro responds, and I think we need to put some emphasis on that idea here. He rejoices. He rejoices. He lifts up his voice and prays to Yahweh, verse 9. You see the capital L-O-R-D. That is the name Yahweh. He rejoices in Yahweh. In fact, it appears that Moses' report persuades Jethro of God's superiority. Now I know, verse 11, that the Lord is greater than all gods because of this affair. I know now that God is greater. Now, some have said that this is Jethro's conversion. That we're witnessing here his turning to saving faith. I don't know that the text actually gives us that much information to determine that here at this point, whether he knew the Lord before, knew the Lord now, or some would even argue that he never did come to truly know the Lord. I'm more persuaded that he is rejoicing with the true God and is responding in faith to what he sees. All that we know here is that Moses proclaims the glories of God to Jethro. Jethro responds in faith to Moses' interpretation of events, and that's crucial. He responds in favor of Moses' interpretation of the events, that God has in fact delivered Israel. And Jethro rejoices in and praises God for the miraculous deliverance of his people. Verse 12 then, Jethro, 
Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. It's interesting, Jethro is referred to 13 times in this passage as Moses' father-in-law and only once as priest. There may be some indication there, some attempt there on the part of the author to steer away from the notion of his previous work as priest. Perhaps he was a pagan priest. We don't know all of this. But at any rate, he brings a sacrifice here to God, and apparently God accepts that sacrifice. So here they are, camped with the people all around at this place of prominence in the camp, this tent. And an altar is constructed. And the wood is ignited, and an animal is killed, and flesh begins to roast on the fire. And soon the solemnity of the occasion gives way to the spirited and sweet fellowship as these men gather around the table to retell and to celebrate the acts of God. Picture them out there in the wilderness with this fire roaring, and then the meat being eaten, and them communing together as they consider the works of God. What we see here is the communion of God's people, rejoicing in His presence as the redeemed people. How else do you read this? We can look at this and say, well, this is a news report of a potluck dinner at the local VFW. You know, I mean, what else, what, what's the point of this? These guys get together, talk, and, and eat. Now, it's much more than that, isn't it? This meal locks into the overarching theme. It reflects the grand biblical pattern of the communion of saints in the redemptive work of God in His presence. It looks very different today as we gather here and offer sacrifices of praise to the Lord. It's a different day. We're on the other side of the cross, but we do the very same thing when we gather together as God's people to worship. These men are gathered to worship and consider the truth of God And we should consider this too, even in the area of eating. For us, it is the Lord's Supper. We gather in communion around the things that God has done, and we rejoice in the redemption that He has worked. I think this also applies even to our fellowship meals as a church, what the the ancient church referred to as agape meals. Perhaps we should use that term more often than we do. But these love feasts, what are they? They're a time to eat. They're a time to celebrate. They're a time to rejoice, to encourage one another in the things of God. And we have such fellowship meals in our church, times in which we commune with one another as the people of God, rejoicing in the new life that we have. Now often this is subtle at a meal. We don't necessarily talk at a meal through the whole time about specific verses of Scripture. I hope we do from time to time. But we are, in a sense, rejoicing in the fact that we are the people of God and dining together in fellowship before His presence. We celebrate as God's people. We are His chosen, His redeemed, and so we eat together. I mean, you don't usually walk into a restaurant and pull up a chair at a table where you don't know the people. And if you're in the habit of doing that, you won't be in it very long, will you? I mean, they they will quickly dismiss you. We don't fellowship with some unknown person at a table, generally speaking. We fellowship at table with those that are our family. Now, of course, we should welcome others in and and all of that to be understood. But generally speaking, fellowship at a meal binds us together and acknowledges that we have been bound together by Christ. And so we have fellowship meals here at our church, and we have the Lord's Supper, and when we do, we commune together in this meal as the people of God. I think it reflects what we do today as God's people, this meal that Moses and Jethro share. I think it also prophesies the future. Consider here, we have a Midianite priest who fellowships with Israel. Not Israel laying aside her belief in God in order to fellowship with this pagan this Midianite, but rather fellowshipping around this Gentile who has come to understand the truth of God to some degree. Again, we don't know all the details of Jethro's heart, but we have a Gentile here responding to the fellowship of God's people. And ultimately, when we take the Lord's Supper as well, we are looking ahead 
to, I, I think, Moses and Jethro, in a sense, are looking ahead to the time when Jew and Gentile relate together in the church as we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. And as we enjoy the Lord's Supper, we participate in a prophetic event. We emphasize this from time to time, but let's remember back in Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15, any time that we eat, certainly in the Lord's Supper, but even I think other meals that we have together are really a prophetic event. They're looking ahead to something greater. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 2, we look into the future from our own time and we read in Revelation 15 2, the revelation of John, where he says, 15 2, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. You see again there the brush strokes. Moses in the past, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, these two great deliverers of the people of God. And we're singing now the song of Moses and the Lamb in the future, in heaven saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This could be the words that are being spoken by Moses and Jethro. Now, of course, they're in that little hut, little tiny house, but it begins to build and becomes greater and greater as Gentiles and Jews come together and in the future rejoice around the throne of Jesus Christ. All nations coming to worship Him and the righteous acts that He has accomplished. Our simple picnics, our communion services will one day burst into a new dimension as we gather in glory to proclaim the mighty acts of God with the redeemed of all ages from all nations. We see this in chapter 19 of Revelation. Chapter 19 and verse 6. When I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Can we do this together? Work with me here. Just think Moses and Jethro eating outside this tent. Very simple, primitive setting. Then picture in your mind a church of Jesus Christ gathered around the Lord's table in service. And then see through that further into the future to this event here, this great multitude that has gathered. Verse 6 says, There are peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and there is a dining there in that marriage supper that fulfills all that we picture as we gather for the Lord's Supper. Our simple picnics and communion services will one day be fulfilled in the presence of Christ as we eat together as his bride. Let's go back to Exodus 18. And let me just throw in one more side note here before we move on to the next scene. But we have in Moses' witness here, I think, some encouragement to us. The emphasis falls on his announcement of God's saving power. I don't want to press this too far, but I think there is a point of application even in our own witness that seems to be evident at the edges of this account. And that is that we really should not overemphasize what the loss must do as much as we emphasize the greatness of what God has done. We need to be cautious here. I think we see this in Moses. We have some questions about whether Jethro is a true believer or not. And I believe the way that Moses responds to him and shares the truth with him is really an ideal way to share the gospel even in our own day, in our own time as we present Christ. Now, must the lost do something? Absolutely. They must hear the gospel. They must understand the gospel. They must trust the gospel. They must repent 
to turn to God. So there is much that the lost must do. But I think there can be an emphasis, perhaps it is something owing to our Western orientation to close the business deal, to emphasize what a person must do in response. They must respond and repent, but our emphasis should be upon the greatness of what God has done, not closing the business deal. To announce the greatness of the saving work of God and to allow God to open the heart and to bring the person to say, as was said to the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? If we present what God has done faithfully by God's grace, that will be the logical question that people ask. I think many times we are guilty, have been guilty perhaps, of so pressing what a person must do in response, we haven't really taken the time to fully proclaim the glory of what God has done. And many times we can get people to respond who really haven't seen the glory yet. They haven't really seen what God has done And I don't think we're helping them in that. Moses just says, here's what God has done. Here's the greatness of our God. And Jethro responds in worship and in praise of this great God and his deliverance of Israel. And so the embers on the altar burn down. And the men with full stomachs and joyful hearts go their separate ways to their tents as the night approaches. And I imagine Moses with a smile on his face It's been good to be reunited with his family. But I imagine that smile slowly fading as his mind turns to his responsibilities of the next day. The party is over. The sweet fellowship and time of rejoicing is past. Tomorrow it is back to work. And Moses is so tired. And the weight of what faces him in the morning is nearly unbearable. He lays down to sleep, but morning will come all too early for Israel's leader. That morning comes at verse 13, where the next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. To judge here means to arbitrate disputes between the Israelites by teaching and applying the law of God to the situations of life. Verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. This is Moses' pattern. Let's think of it for a moment. Moses was God's chosen shepherd of this nation, Psalm 77 and verse 20. And Moses gave himself to the task of teaching the people God's will and applying his will to their disputes. Now, wouldn't you think again, going back to their earlier relationship, that Jethro would be a bit impressed with all of this? What Moses is doing. His son-in-law had served as a simple shepherd for 40 years. Now here he is as the prime minister, the chief justice, the lead counselor, the ultimate teacher of the entire nation. The man to whom everyone appealed for decisive wisdom about what God thought and how his truth applied to daily life. It's pretty impressive. But leave it to a father-in-law to not be impressed with his son-in-law. And what does Jethro say? Verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. I would imagine that kind of shocked Moses a bit. I'm serving God here. I'm following the call of God upon my life. How could Jethro say such a thing? Jethro explains, verse 18, You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Moses, you're going to destroy your health. I mean, I think to put it into real physical terms, that's basically what he's saying. You are going to wear out. You can't do this. You're a human being who cannot sustain this kind of pressure. And you're going to wear out the people, too. They are not going to do well and fare well standing around in lines all day, waiting for time with you. 
Well, Jethro's not only able to criticize, he's also able to offer a solution and does so in verse 19. Now, obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. What's he saying? Moses, concentrate on the big stuff. Your job needs to be to pour your time out in prayer. Verse 19. You need to be alone with God and represent the people to Him. It's a very interesting thought on Jethro's part. Obey my voice, I will give you advice. You shall represent the people before God. This is prayer. It's intercession for the people. This is important. You need to be in touch with their king. Talk to him. Spend your time with him. What's the second thing you're to do? Warn them, verse 20, about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Spend your time proclaiming the word of God. This way, all of the people will seek and grow in their discernment of what God wants And you will be handling less disputes as problems arise, and more and more people will begin to apply the Word of God and avoid some of these disputes. You spend your time teaching the people how to live and praying. This makes my skin tingle. If you're with me here, you might be picking this up. There's brush strokes here, aren't there? There's patterns here, aren't there? Verse 21, moreover, what's he going to do with the rest of everybody else? Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. I think the phrase there means, God willing, as he directs, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace, in shalom, in peace. So, the people were to be led by whom? By charactered men chosen from among them. They were men who were to fear God. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. If you don't fear God, you don't have any wisdom. You might be smart and get some things done in this life, but you have no wisdom unless you fear God. They must fear God. That would indicate a godly example of life. They must, secondly, be trustworthy individuals. They may have a deep relationship with God, but are they trustworthy? Are they dependable? Are they follow-through men? Generally, those two go together, but you need to look for that as a, as a second point. Are they people you can lean on? Will they get the job done? Will they be consistent? Will they be faithful? And thirdly, are they lovers of justice? That is, they must hate bribes. The perversion of justice, something they despise. They have a passion for what's right. There are some who are simply too tolerant. Tolerance, understood in the right sense of the word, is a virtue. Not necessarily the way it's defined by our culture, but tolerance is a virtue. But there are some who are too tolerant of sin. They really don't have a sense of holy anger when things are wrong. These are not the kind of people to lead the people of God. This needs to be someone who can be angered by injustice and who will not bow to a bribe. This is who you're to find. Now these men are not chosen from Moses' family. They're not his cronies. They're not the people who are of one particular tribe. Tribe of Levi, for instance. They were not to be selected on the basis of wealth or experience. There's really not even a mention here necessarily of age. 
They were to be chosen by the people on the basis of their character, and they were to lead and guide and serve God's people in cooperation with Moses. Verse 24. How does Moses respond? Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Moses, we have learned in Scripture, was a meek man. He was a wise man, and wise men are never too proud to listen. They are able to discern between the voice of folly and the voice of truth, Proverbs 12, 15 and 13, 10. They listen to the truth. It is good to be back with you this week in more ways than one. But we were on vacation last week, and my dear wife persuaded me into a, to do some shopping, which is a real hard task for her. I weary her with that, but we got out into a store, and I find more illustrations in stores than I ever find clothes. But I found one. I found a t-shirt that said, You are looking at the center of the universe. I could have bought the shirt, but I didn't want the clerk to (laughs) think anything of that. You are the center of the universe. Doesn't that speak for our day? You know, Moses never wore that t-shirt. He never even thought about it. He was a meek man who could receive counsel and advice. When God is at the center of your universe... We are far more interested in knowing the truth and listening to wise counsel than we are on being right and independent. One of the major struggles that we have with the sin of pride is to think we have to come up with it all. We have to be independent. We cannot submit to the counsel of someone else. We have to always be right. It has to be our idea. Moses didn't wear that t-shirt. God was at the center of his universe, and whoever spoke the truth to him, he heard it, he listened, and he adjusted. And I wonder about us. As individuals, are you willing to have another person speak truth into your life? There is, in the heart of many of God's people, sadly, a wall that says, leave me alone. I will live my life my way in my time, and all of the ideas will be mine. That is not the fear of God. That is pride. I hope that that is not true of our hearts, that we are unwilling to listen to wise counsel. I wonder about our own church. Are we the kind of church that is open to discussion and able to build one another up through healthy critique? There's unhealthy critique. We all understand there are some people who just couldn't ever see good in anything no matter how long they lived. And so often their ideas are colored by that perspective. And there are many ideas that we should all dismiss. Any parent knows that uh, quite well. But are we in an environment as a church, are we nurturing this? We need to strive to do so, to be open to the thoughts of others. And to know, as some thoughts are shared, that they're not good ideas. And in fact, the sharing of that less than perfect idea is sometimes a process for both sides to work through something and to learn. But there are other times when there are ideas that are good, that are from God. And maybe they don't come from somebody we really care to hear from. The issue is going to be whether I'm at the center of my own universe or God is. If He's at the center of my universe, then truth is more important than my own ideas and independence. Moses evidenced this in one reason, I believe, why he is called a man of meekness. Not a man of weakness at all, but a man who could set aside his own ways and reputation and submit to wisdom. May his heart be our heart as a church and as individuals. In verse 26, they judged the people at all times. Any hard case, they brought to Moses, but any small matter, they decided themselves. The work was passed out among the people, and it worked. It was effective. And Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. 
Now, as in the first scene, we need to see in this scene something much more than a simple report of an administrative change in Israel. We must see in this narrative the characteristic brushstrokes of our Heavenly Father. We see the little hut here. It's not the big house that we have today, but God is at work. As a loving Father, God has no desire for His people to walk in chaos. We have a distinct parallel, I think, between Jethro's wisdom and God's pattern for the local church. And if you've been catching that, you see this very clearly. The church is never to be a one-man show, the New Testament indicates. No single individual can possibly bear the weight of a church's ministry alone. There are those who attempt to do so, and they begin to do so in ways that are not biblical ways. Whenever one individual seeks to control an entire church and have everything run through him, that individual will begin to lead in unbiblical ways. You have to. You've got to grasp at different ideas and notions and patterns that are not God's patterns. God has ordained that a group of charactered men, recognized by the assembly and invested with authority to exercise leadership within the spiritual community, share the load of spiritual watch care. If you have been with us for any period of time, if you have been awake at all in this assembly, you know those are, that is a biblical principle that we have sought to honor within this church. Let me say it again. A group of charactered men recognized by the assembly, invested with authority to exercise leadership within the spiritual community, sharing the load of spiritual watch care. This is what God's Word says in the Old Testament, and this is what God's Word indicates in the New Testament. It really shouldn't be shocking to us at all. In fact, as I mentioned, it makes me tingle. Think of what God has said in verses 19 and 20, what he's indicated here in this chapter. Verses 19 and 20, think of it again. What is Moses to do? Through Jethro, God indicates to Moses that he is to do what? Represent the people before God in prayer. What's the second thing that he has to do? Verse 20. He's to warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk. What does that sound like? Say it. Acts chapter 6, isn't it? Acts 6, let's turn there. Exact same idea. Different situation, it's a different house, different time, different era. God is doing different things here in Acts chapter 6. But we have the very same idea represented Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What do we have there? A conflict. We have a dispute among the people of God. Verse 2, And the twelve... These are the apostles, the leaders that Jesus has chosen, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good report, good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We haven't looked at Deuteronomy chapter 1, but in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses uses this same concept. You appoint them from among you, and I will approve them as leaders in the nation. But what are we going to do, verse 4? We will devote ourselves to prayer, Exodus 18, 19, and to the ministry of the word, Exodus 18, 20. We see the author's brushstrokes. And I don't know how many times I read through those verses in Exodus 18 and never saw that. But here it is. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, we have qualifications for elders of the church of Jesus Christ, for leaders that arise up among the assembly, not the cronies of the pastor, not simply friends that he draws from around the world, but individuals who rise up from within the assembly who can be noted to be charactered individuals according to these characteristics of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 sounds very much like what we're seeing here in Exodus 18. And the people are to do what? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. 
We could look at Romans 12, 3 through 6, and note there the giftedness that God gives to His people to carry on the works of ministry. But we find it uh, noted here very succinctly, as was read earlier to us in Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 11. Ephesians 4, 11, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to the church. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness or deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, this is what the church is to be and do. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is Moses doing in Exodus 18? He is declaring the statutes and the laws of the Lord such that the people of God know the truth of God, put it into practice, and live a life of holiness. Now as the whole process progresses, they're going to come to Mount Sinai and they're going to have some of this in writing. And they're going to have then a tabernacle that demonstrates the approach to God and how the believer relates to Him. And in time, all of this is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who then pours out His gifts upon His church and seeks to equip His people for works of ministry. That is, that the law of God would be written on the heart. There is no room as we summarize this, in God's plan for Lone Ranger Christians or controlling dictators in the pastoral office. We are called to work together as a loving community to carry the weight of ministering for Christ in a fallen world. What are the leaders of the church to do? As we find in Acts 6, as we find indicated in other representative passages of the New Testament. They are to minister the Word and they are to pray. Their life is to be given in devotion to God such that they can convey the truth and the mind of God to His people so that they are strengthened and mature. And this is a battle. This is a constant battle for anyone who isn't lazy that's in the pastoral office. There's so many good things to do. So many places you can pour your time and effort to maintain a focus upon the ministry of the Word and prayer is not easy, and it's particularly difficult in the culture in which we live, where pastors are supposed to be CEOs, business managers, who take the assembly forward by pushing the right buttons. We need, as a church, to ever keep our head clear. I need to. Pastor Pratt needs to. And indeed, our elders need to keep our heads clear that we do what is most important. To minister the Word of God and to pray. And then to see, as the assembly responds to God's pattern, works of service that are accomplished in the nitty-gritty of life in the local church as people pick up the weight and run with it, carry it, push the church forward. The church is to grow in their knowledge of God's truth such that they live righteously under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And as Ephesians 4 and verse 12 says, that they would do the works of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. We have pictured this as in our church probably more under the theme of shepherding but you see where this comes from. We are all, as God's people, to serve as spiritual shepherds in one respect or another, to learn the truth of God, to learn how to minister to others such that we build one another up and carry one another forward in the faith. This is not something a church does by structures. Sometimes people get confused about that and think that the church ought to do this or that to create such an environment. This comes from feeding on God's Word and discerning what God wants 
what he says, how we are to relate to one another, and it comes from all of us together, pulling together and seeing, I need to be influencing other people for Jesus Christ. I need to be an influence for righteousness, to disciple others, to shepherd the soul of someone around me. As we come with that orientation and with that thought, we together build the body of Christ as it feeds on the Word of God. God has never left His people to chaos. And He has no intention of relying so heavily upon one individual that that person is the nerve center of everything that happens in the assembly. There is leadership. There's to be qualified leadership. And there is to be diligent effort in the preaching of God's word and prayer. But all of us together are God's people. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a holy nation. And we are to learn and to grow to be the kind of people who influence others for Jesus Christ. Who proclaim the message of Christ crucified and risen. Proclaim the glorious acts of God. And draw others into the light by God's mercy and equipping. Let's bow for prayer and dedicate ourselves to the task that God has given us. Father, thank you for the wisdom of your word and your purposes and your plan and pattern for us as your people. Thank you. We give you praise. We are awed by your watch, care, and concern. And as we watch these patterns develop and take on flesh and become more and more established as the Bible unfolds, we just rejoice in your care for us. And God, it also puts within our heart a longing for that day when we will gather in the marriage supper of the Lamb in your presence when all will be right and when this world will be set straight. God, we long for that day, and I pray until then that we would be faithful as servants of Jesus Christ, serving you as well as we can, and honoring the ministry of the word and prayer within our assembly and in our individual lives. Teach us to be shepherds. For anyone who has not heard the great deeds of God in a saving way, I pray that you would draw such individuals to yourself as Savior even today as we break from this assembly that they would seek the Lord. They would hear of your great power to forgive sin and to defeat death and that they would come willingly and anxiously to know the wisdom of your word. Please bring a soul to Christ today, we pray. Father, move within our church and within our individual lives that we will bring honor and glory to you. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.